Welcome back to Missing. I am Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I am doing so well today, Tim. I hope everyone out there who's listening, I hope they're doing just as well as I'm doing. And a lot of this good feeling comes from the conversation that we had just a couple of days ago with this wonderful woman. She's searching for her mom, but it gets a lot more deeper and a lot more spiritual, which I totally appreciate. And I think the listeners will as well. But Tim, I want to appreciate how you are. How are you? (laughs) I'm doing all right. Thanks a lot for asking. Yeah. So in this episode, we speak with Carolyn DeFord. She is the daughter of Leona Kinsey, who has been missing since 1999 from La Grande, Oregon. And we produced a part one on Leona's case with Lieutenant Hayes of the LeGrand Police Department. So you may want to scroll back. It's uh, one of our latest episodes. Scroll back a few to hear that one. But this is with Leona's daughter, Carolyn. And it's obviously a little bit of a different vibe. We get an emotional take on Leona's disappearance. And I just love it when these series of episodes come together where we can have law enforcement on talking about the details and the motivation that law enforcement has to bring answers to the family. But like you just said, this one has a different feel to it. It is incredibly emotional, but Carolyn really keeps it together and so well articulates the story. And there's a moment here that I think everyone's going to take something different away from where she tells a story about her and her mom and they're talking about death and without giving anything away, you really need to listen to that because it's one of the first times a guest has come on and told a story like that because when we heard it, we just like, we had nothing after. It was just such an amazing moment. Yeah, it really was. And uh, let us know what you think on social media at Missing CSM. And we were introduced to Carolyn by the Light the Way organization. And you can check out everything that Light the Way does at their website, lightthewaymissing.com. Leona has brown hair, brown eyes, is 5'2", 110 pounds, and was 46 years old at the time of her disappearance. And there is currently a reward for information leading to Leona Kinsey's whereabouts in this case. So if you have any information, please call the LeGrand Police Department at 541-963-1017. And Tim, before we break for a commercial and return with Carolyn, I just want to wish you and yours and all of our listeners a happy Thanksgiving. Happy holiday to you, Lance, and happy holiday to our listeners. Thanks a lot for listening to this. We really appreciate you. We'll be right back with Carolyn. Welcome to the podcast, Carolyn. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you on. And I'm so glad that we were finally able to do this interview. It's been uh, a long time coming. We were connected through the wonderful organization, Light the Way Missing. Can you talk to us about who you are, not only your work with Light the Way and why you're connected to them, but you're also very, very, very I can't emphasize it enough, heavily involved in the missing and murdered indigenous women movement in your area. So for anyone who doesn't know you, can you please uh, fill our listeners in on exactly who you are and what you do? Uh, My name is Carolyn DeFord. I am a Puyallup tribal member. I also have Nisqually and Cowlitz. 
tribal descendancy on my mother's side and Scottish, Irish, French on my father's side. I currently live and reside uh, in the South Puget Sound area in the Squally Tribal Territory, and I work for the Puyallup Tribe of Indians in the Community Domestic Violence Advocacy Program as their anti-trafficking program manager and MMIWP advocate. My mother, Leona LeClaire Kinsey, went missing October 25th, 1999, so we're approaching that 25-year um, anniversary of her disappearance. Uh, just a couple of years after that, my cousin Lenore Davis Lawrence was uh, was murdered. And so um, she was responding to a call for help from a friend who was experiencing domestic violence. Uh, both of those um, experiences really shook my family, especially my aunties and, and, you know, my matriarchs who lost their daughter and niece and their sister within a very short period of time. I started doing advocacy for families of missing, just families of missing um, very organically. I didn't realize what I was doing was advocacy. It was empathy to me. Um, I would just reach out to other families who had loved ones missing on, back then it was MySpace uh, and, and Facebook had kind of started kind of creeping in a little bit. And um, I was learning that families needed the same thing that I did. We needed to talk, but there was nowhere to talk about it. And I often um, protected my family from these emotions by not talking about it with them. And I think they protected me, you know, the same way from, from these hard emotions by not talking about it with me. You know, if I cried, they would stop. If they cried, I would stop. But we didn't realize, or at least I didn't realize that we needed, we needed to cry. We needed to get it out. We needed to process our story and how we felt and how it impacted us and our grief and you know other families needed that too and so that was kind of how I, I got started into the advocacy side of things. I currently sit on the Washington State Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and People's Task Force as the co-chair for the families uh, representation in the subcommittee uh, family subcommittee. I've also uh, volunteered my time with Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women USA uh, as an admin on their Facebook page and doing outreach to families uh, who may need awareness and help creating posters and and uh, just support getting the word out. In 2017, I started Missing and Murdered Native Americans, which is a we're a couple of volunteer uh, women volunteers who have missing and murdered uh, Indigenous relatives, and we volunteer our time and resources and you know, out of pocket to support families in any way that we can. Primarily uh, at this time, it's through social media outreach and connection to resources and referral and just emotional support. It's an amazing uh, collection of work that you do. And you said so eloquently that you didn't realize you were doing advocacy because it was coming from more of an empathetic place. And I'm just wondering, like, with your background and your and your culture, that must have had a huge impact or a huge influence on on your empathetic qualities. Is that is that pretty accurate? I think so. You know, it was. It also made me feel like, still feel very strongly that connecting with other families, being for lack of better words, being what I needed, I needed somebody, and there was no one kind of has made this whole experience have some kind of a sense of purpose. 
if that sounds right, but it's not in vain. You know, I'm not letting this happen. I'm not letting this happen and not benefit somebody. Right. I'm curious, is there some crossover in your work in human trafficking and in domestic violence? Oh, this is a whole nother podcast. (laughs) Uh, We could go on for days, but you know, domestic violence, often uh, trafficking survivors are groomed and lured by romantic uh, romantic partners or the potential for for love. There's that connection, that romantic connection and the domestic violence intimate partner connection to trafficking, but also nearly 62% of our trafficking survivors uh, nationwide have been uh, lured into, um, into trafficking, prostitution or sex work by somebody that they know, a family member, an intimate partner, you know, somebody who is close to them. And so often that connection itself is, is a domestic violence connection. And you're so right that this is a completely different or separate but related podcast episode. We speak with family members and especially parents, mothers who will talk to us about their daughter who's missing. And it's just so clearly evident that the missing part of it was due to the domestic violence. I mean, there's so much evidence that this is a direct link. And I'm just, this question is uh, probably nothing that any one of us can answer, but do you find it to be the same case that when you're working with these families, all of this evidence had been present, but just very subtle leading up to a disappearance or a, a, a moment of abuse that's so significant it sends somebody to the hospital? Yeah, uh, I think trafficking and domestic violence probably are integral in... 85, 90% of the families that I talk to and, and whether we see it immediately within our family or, you know, an outsider sees some of the indicators more clearly than we do inside is a whole nother, you know, sometimes I can see things that look like indicators or um, sometimes the family has a suspicion that they're, you know, that this intimate partner may have, have been uh, trying to engage this person in prostitution, or there is a known history of either sex work or uh, human trafficking, but there's usually something there, you know, and, and a majority of them, like, I don't have a statistic, but I can't think of any off the top of my head that there hasn't been some uh, active addiction or substance abuse component as well. Okay. So uh, your mom's been missing since October 25th, 1999. Um can you tell us about her? What What's she like? Uh, my mom was funny. Uh, she was compassionate. She was the kind of person that would do without to give to others. She was creative and artistic and independent. Uh, she didn't count on anybody for anything. She would always say, I'll do it myself, or you can do it yourself. If I would talk about needing help with something, she'd say, you don't need help with that. You can do that. So she was very independent and encouraging and empowering to me, you know, to watch uh, my mom do things that you wouldn't think that a hundred pound, five foot three little, little woman would, would be doing. She loved the outdoors, uh, hunting and fishing and um, just being out in the woods. She loved gardening and traditional medicines. And part of it was necessity. You know, we, we didn't have a lot of money, but our freezer was full of of things that, you know, food that my parents had harvested or, or gathered. And so we ate a very healthy, uh, whole diet. My mom 
uh, had a goofy, silly sense of humor. And, you know, she always had nicknames for people and, and people always thought that that was funny. Like, where did she get that? You know, like <laughs> I had one friend that she called squeak and I'm, we don't know where she came up with that one, but, but she did. My mom also struggled uh, with her, you know, her own issues. She was a victim of sexual assault and domestic violence. She coped with that, you know, in the not the most healthy way. And she struggled with substance abuse uh, for several years. And she fought a lot against that. She went to went to treatment and was seeking treatment at the time of her disappearance. And, you know, it wasn't until I got older and I started looking at my mom's story from an advocate lens, not from a daughter lens. And my mom fought for her recovery. She really did want to be um, want to be clean and want to be there for her, her family and her grandkids. And I used to try and keep that, you know, I was raised to keep those, those skeletons in the closet. You don't talk about addiction in your family. You just don't talk about it. I realized I wasn't protecting anybody. You know, I wasn't helping anybody by not, not being real. Uh, my mom's not the only one, you know, like I'm not the only family member who, who has had to uh, grow up seeing and witnessing their loved one struggle. So I try to be as honest as I can about it while I still, you know, there's still that kind of stigma or stereotype about not talking about it and making sure that what I say isn't able to be twisted into a victim blaming, you know, situation. Yeah. One of the major points that we always try to emphasize is that the person who's missing, typically the circumstances of any addiction or any sort of vice it doesn't really matter i mean it matters in the investigation but it should never matter in how the public is perceiving this person who's missing because it's family members who are looking and it's family members who are constantly reminded and and the 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 wound is always open and and the the addiction and the vice yeah leave that to the police like leave that to the people who are investigating it because it really shouldn't matter when you're looking at it from like a public point of view but it takes like a hugely strong person to go to recovery to go to rehab to say i have a problem just just admitting it and saying it out loud is way stronger than hiding it and and being secretive about your addiction uh, so it sounds like your mom obviously wanted to make herself a more healthy individual. And you were saying about how having, you know, there's always food in the freezer and they would, you know, gather and, and they'd bring food in. Uh, and she was always saying that you could do things yourself. Where did that come from? Where, where was, was that something that she was raised to do? And I feel like, I feel like that goes hand in hand with the recovery. Like, Hey, I'm going to take on, take this on myself. Yeah, I think you know, just culturally, we were hunters and gatherers. My mom was raised to, you know, coming from a native family, hunting was was an integral part of our, our culture and our way of life. And when she met my stepdad, who was an outdoorsman, he was a logger, it just kind of fell hand in hand. She was able to spend the time that she enjoyed out in the woods with him and, and in the forest, um, you know, gathering medicines or huckleberries or blackberries or mushrooms and culturally I think that was a good fit for her independence um my mom comes from a long line of independent women I think you know my my great-grandmother my grandmother uh, my aunties all very very independent and strong women so I, I think 
you know, she just had that example to live up to. And um, tell us about what your life was like at the time um, of your mom's disappearance. I was 25 years old. I lived uh, in Olympia, Washington, which is six, uh, five to six hours away from where my mom lived or my hometown where I grew up in La Grande, Oregon. And I had three small children, so it wasn't really five or six hours. It was like an eight, nine hour drive. By the time you stop and let them, you know, walk and potty and get food and, you know, all of that stuff. So I didn't go home very often. I also was a, you know, as a single mom and, and sole provider for my family, I didn't have, um, I didn't have any extra money for trips. So tax return time, that was usually something um, that we would save up to do to go visit one another. My kids were, you know, five and under Uh, my daughter, you know, five of the oldest four and two years old. Um, So I had a, I had a pretty full plate. I worked uh, full time and my mom, uh, she wrote regularly, you know, she wrote a letter at least twice a month. She would send a care package about once a month and it was always full of silly things like uh, booger shaped candies or candy poop or, um, (laughs) books, uh, little talking toy keychains and stuff like that. Um, costume, you know, pieces of costume, sombreros and, and little hats and things like that for the kids to play with. And, um, she would always put $5 in those, uh, packages and saying, get something little for yourself, you know, buy yourself a soda. Um, cause we didn't have money, you know, like I didn't have the extra money to go to the gas station and get a soda. It was gas. You know, there, there weren't, I didn't have any money for those extras. And so that little treat of, you know, having a couple dollars extra was always nice. And when did you hear that your mom went missing? You know, I heard that she went missing on the 25th. Nancy called and uh, Nancy was my mom's best friend. They had been friends since I was in about fourth, fifth grade. And uh, Nancy called and asked if my mom was here. And um, well, she left a message at my work. You know, that whole day was, in hindsight, it was a very spiritual day. At the moment, I just thought I was a wreck. Um, but I woke up that morning and I cried. I cried about everything. I, I cried getting dressed. I cried walking out the door. I cried because I had to go pick up my kids at my dad's house. I cried because I had to go to work. I cried everything. And I, I didn't know why. I just... I just thought that I was unhappy. You know, I'm, I'm just depressed. There's so much stress and so many things going on in life that I can't keep up with. And I just wanted to be able to stay home and rest. And I, and I couldn't. And so I got to work and I was crying when I walked in the door and been crying all day. So I was puffy eyed and my coworker said, go ahead and go home. We've got your shift covered. Don't, don't worry about us. We're fine. Go home. And I was like, I'm, I'm just having a bad day. I'll be fine. And they asked if I had heard from Nancy, my mom's friend, that Nancy had called and left a message and they gave Nancy my phone number. And I said, no, I, you know, I haven't heard from her, but, you know, I'll be fine. They're like, well, call up, call her first. Don't, you know, call her before you clock in. So I called her and she said that my mom had said the night before that she was going to come over and she was going to go meet a man named John at the store and she would be over afterwards and she didn't show up. And Nancy was hoping that my mom had decided to come see me. And I hadn't heard from her. She wasn't there. 
Uh, I told Nancy, I didn't know, you know, I don't know, she's not here, you know, I don't know what to, what to tell you. I'll call her, you know, I'll call around and see if she'll, you know, return my call. And so I was calling her and paging her and she wasn't answering, you know, and at that time we didn't have cell phones, but I was still, I still thought there was something, there was an explanation. Maybe she had a flat tire or a dead battery or something, you know, something happened and she couldn't get to a payphone to call anybody. So I wasn't too worried. Uh, Nancy was more worried and Nancy was driving around town. You know, it's a small town. LeGrand's not very big and uh, an even smaller circle that my mom was a part of. And Nancy drove around looking for her and asked everybody that they knew and, and looked for her, you know, for a full almost, you know, 12 hours before she called me. And so Nancy was worried and my mom had left the dog outside and that was not, you know, the dog was, I moved away and the dog became the good kid. Like my mom took care of that dog, like, like better than a child. (laughs) And there was no way she would have left and left the dog outside, you know, for any amount of time more than to go to the gas station. She wouldn't have left the dog outside to go to the store and then go to Nancy's. Um, I even questioned if she would have left it outside that time of year to go to the store. You know, we were end of October, it was cold and she, it just wasn't like her to do that. So that was kind of concerning to, to both of us, but I just thought there's gotta be, there's gotta be some kind of an explanation. My mom is independent. And what was the state of her home after the realization came to be that she was in fact missing? Her house looked like she, I mean, my mom was always very tidy. Um, she's a collector of things. So she had a lot of, a lot of neat things, you know, interesting things. And, um, so her home was full, but it was always clean and tidy. And, you know, she, as a child, she was a housekeeper. Um, so when I grew up, she was always cleaning houses for prominent folks in the community and to pride in keeping the house clean. So, you know, there were a couple of things out of place, and things that indicated that she didn't plan on being gone. You know, nothing was disarray, in disarray or anything. There was no sign of of anything having been broken. But she had a full pot of coffee in the coffee pot. Um, she had a bunch of bananas on the table. And they had started to turn brown and get old. And um, she had a full loaf of bread. Uh, my mom stored her cigarettes in the refrigerator. And there was a full carton of cigarettes in the refrigerator. Like there was nothing there indicating that she had planned on leaving. And you said that she was going to the store to meet a man named John. Is this somebody that she knew? Is this the 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 John that is associated with the with her disappearance? Yeah, John John or Juan was the person of interest, but my mom called him John. I had never met him before and I don't really know if Nancy met him, but Nancy knew of him. So you, you said you never met him? Mm-mm. I left home when I was about 21 uh, and moved to Washington to be closer to my dad. And um, I was also in an unhealthy relationship. And so I was getting away, um, getting away from that. And my mom and I didn't share the same lifestyle as adults. And so I didn't have any real connection with any of her associates or people that she hung out with other than other than Nancy or people that were in her life as a child. 
And how far away was the store from her home? And what type of store was it? Was it like a 7-Eleven or a supermarket? It was at Albertsons and it was in a small plaza. LaGrand's a small town, so we called it the mall, but there's probably only eight little stores in it. Um, so LaGrand was in that small plaza and there was a gas station uh, in the parking lot and a small restaurant in the parking lot. Um, I think it was Skipper's. And uh, there was a corner of that parking lot, I guess, that she would uh, meet people at or, you know, park when she was meeting with John. And um, it was maybe not even five minutes from her home. And what is what is an Albertsons? It's it's kind of like a Safeway. Uh, it's a large, a larger grocery store. And so it's not, I guess, uncommon for your mom to maybe pop out and just grab something real quick and head back? Yeah. Okay. Do you feel like when she said that she was meeting this man named John, that that was a way of her saying that she didn't feel safe in any way? You know, I don't know. Because Nancy's one of Nancy's concerns was that there were rumors in town the first thing Nancy, you know, one of the first things Nancy said was that there were rumors in town that my mom was a snitch. And a couple of weeks prior to that, somebody had spray painted narc on the front of my mom's home. And my mom was really upset about it. I mean, my mom's home was a, a older single wide uh, trailer, you know, the aluminum with the hitch on the front and had a little tip out, you know, it wasn't anything fancy, but my mom kept it uh, maintained. And Somebody had spray painted narc on the front of that. And so my mom was really, um, really upset. Um, and so Nancy was concerned that there were, you know, people in town thought that she was a snitch. And I think that, you know, that was a concern for my mom's well-being for Nancy. I didn't know anything about that. Um, and then the rumor being, you know, what I'd heard was that um, John was her supplier. John was where she would go to 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 buy. And... Nancy was just concerned that something might have happened. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. Wow. Yeah, that's um, a pretty extreme uh, thing, I guess. Uh, someone spray painting narc on, uh, on the door. Um, did, I guess, from your conversations with Nancy, did... Did she or your mom have any idea who they thought that was, who did that? Uh, no, not that I'm aware of. I I don't think, if Nancy did, uh, I didn't hear about it. Um, but what I was told was that my mom had gotten, my mom was in contact with law enforcement. I don't know if she was involved in some kind of a, of a bust or she got caught with, I think, maybe pot um, at the time, but, um, after that people in my mom's circle were getting arrested. And so the rumor was, you know, as far as Nancy was concerned, the rumor around town was that my mom was involved in that. Because she hadn't gotten arrested? Or because her arrest was just pot. You know, everybody else had larger, you know, bigger charges and she just had pot. I don't know if that is fact, you know, I haven't seen any arrest records or anything like that prior to my mom's disappearance to know, you know, what, um, if there was anything of that nature involved, but that was the rumor. Right, right. So it wasn't so much, she definitely was doing the, the, the informing, 
but the rumor was that she was doing the informing because of the circumstances of her arrest for just having pot on her. And do you, though, personally think that her disappearance is related to the individuals who wrote narc on the door? I don't know. I don't know who it was. I I have always felt that her disappearance was was related to John, that John was involved, and that there were other people in her close circle who knew more than they came forward with and still know more than they let on. Uh, and I think that they didn't feel safe, that they knew what happened to my mom and they didn't feel safe to speak up about it. Or maybe even their involvement was forced, you know, as well. And so they would be incriminating themselves or something. I don't know. You know, your imagination can go a hundred different directions. Uh, and I've probably imagined thousands of scenarios. Right. And uh, was John well known in your mom's circles? Did, did like everybody know him and know of him and everything? I'm not sure. I know several people knew of him and, uh, but I don't know whether, I don't know how tight he was in my mom's circle. And um, when we spoke with uh, Lieutenant Hayes, he um, mentioned that John might be in Mexico now. Do you think that changes anything for anyone else in the area who may have information? I hope so. You know, I hope folks that had bits or pieces of information uh, feel safe enough to come forward or, you know, to share even anonymously, you know, what they what they heard or what they knew. Um, over the years, people have messaged me on social media. Somebody messaged me once and said, when she was young and dumb and drugging in La Grande, uh, she was up in the mountains and somebody told her, if you ever work for the police in La Grande re regarding the drugs here, you'll end up in the bottom of a hole on the top of Mount Emily, like Leona. And so she was very specific about in a hole working with the police with drugs and my mom, you know, being that it, my mom's name. And I think, you know, it's, those rumors came from somewhere, you know? Wow. Yeah. That's a lot of stuff to process. I mean, how, how are you, how do you compartmentalize all of the different rumors and, and the, the, the things that you know to be fact? I'm not sure if, if I, do. I'm not sure if I do. I think there's a lot of disassociating. It gets really hard sometimes I have a hard time. Yeah, it's it gets hard. You know, I can compartmentalize it sometimes as far as what I can do now is limited, you know, and and moving forward. But at the time of my mom's disappearance, I didn't have the time or the resources to stop living. You know, I had three small children that depended on me. As it was when I went to my mom's house and came home, I went there like the first week of November I got there like November 9th. It had taken me that long. Like I had to wait two weeks to get paid. I didn't, you know, I, it took me a little bit to get the resources to go, to go there. And a lot of it is a blur. Um, a lot of it is just, just blurry, but I also, I couldn't stop working, you know, as it was, I came home from that trip and my lights were shut off and I was late on my rent and I, I had to try and figure that out. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't take the time that I needed at that time to, to cope with it. And a lot of our families can't, it takes time and there really wasn't any. And I had a really strong, uh, I had a really strong 
naive, disillusioned sense of what happens uh, when somebody is reported missing, of what law enforcement can and can't do, what resources they have, and how you process a case like this. Like I, I admittedly had these television ideas of, of what would happen in, in my head. And I had a lot of faith that that's, you know, that they would, they would find her. And earlier, uh, Tim had mentioned uh, Lieutenant Jason Hayes, who we spoke to on a previous episode. And you just mentioned uh, law enforcement. You had all of these preconceived notions based on what we all see in the media and on television. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your relationship with Lieutenant Hayes and how that came to be? And I guess what your what your impression is of the department, because when we spoke with them, it was just it's so rare for us to have a, a member of law enforcement on who's actively investigating a cold case, especially one from uh, 1999. That's something that he clearly is just so dedicated to bringing some conclusion to. What's your uh, working relationship with him and, and the department? Um, starting with the department, you know, when I first reported my mom's case or reported my mom missing picking up the phone. Like I remember the phone feeling so heavy and not really being able to speak. Like everything that I said came out in a whisper. I, I couldn't push enough. I couldn't make a voice. And the detective at that time, so I have to draw this comparison. The detective at that time was a jerk. Um, he was insensitive. He, I didn't feel like he cared at, at all. He hung up on me once. Um, I quit. I quit reaching out to them because he was so, uh, I just, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to talk to them. I'm not going to talk to him. And it took a while, you know, after a couple of years, I would call and ask for updates and the, the case had changed um, Detective Shaw was working her case at that time, and he was very, he would take the time to talk to me. He was pretty compassionate and take the time to listen to me and um, give me updates, and I appreciated that. So Shaw was like night and day compared to uh, our first detective, and I started talking to and working with uh, Hayes maybe five or six years ago, and over the last two years, you know, he's been... Uh, very receptive to, you know, what we've requested or answering questions or looking into things. And I appreciate that so much. Um, you know, I'll probably never be, you know, never feel like all the I's are dotted and T's are crossed in my mom's case. And some of them are too late to go back and, and, and do, but I appreciate, you know, his willingness to, to work with me, to work with like the way to to take the time to uh, help get the word out and and speak with you know with folks like you. Right. Yeah. And um, how has the uh, Light the Way group um, helped you? Um, well, I was introduced to them through uh, Melinda Jetterberg, who I went to high school with, and she also works on the Finley Creek Jane Doe Task Force, and so. We were in contact through social media and she uh, volunteered or offered to help in my mom's case. And I can't say how much I appreciate her and her resources that she had with the, you know, with Finley Creek Jane Doe and how much progress she made on that and connecting me with different podcasts and connecting me with Light the Way and 
you know, kind of really being able to be the boots on the ground in Legrand that I can't, I wouldn't have connected with them had it not been, you know, been with her. And, you know, like the way it's been, we have a group chat going and anytime I have a question or a concern or something, you know, pops into my head, we can, we can talk about those things. And so they've been um, able to advocate for me or for my mom in ways that I was never uh, able to separate the emotional uh, stress, you know, and my own anger and frustration. You know, I can be angry and frustrated with them and not shut them down or sound or look crazy. And they can carry that. They can represent what I'm feeling a little bit more tactfully than I can. It's always good to have a group of people that can be confidently in your corner and able to feel comfortable enough to say, I get where your emotions are coming from, but we might need to tone this this phrase down a little bit and pull back over here. So uh, they're they're super they're 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 an amazing organization, just so full of like passion and empathy that it's really moving. Part of the conversation, though, when you were just speaking about your frustrations, it was something that you had mentioned before we actually started recording. You said that uh, there are spiritual factors that people don't understand that law enforcement, they don't understand. And I just found that so fascinating and, uh, and, and kind of bittersweet. Is, is there a way that you can explain this? What, what are the spiritual factors? I was always taught growing up that there are things in this world that we just can't see. Um, that there's more, you know, there's more than I can see. And there's things that have happened in my life and in my journey with my mom that to me are undeniable. There's a feeling that you get when something is more uh, spiritual or uh, a message or has meaning um, than when something is coincidence. Um, And often there's other things that validate it like before or after that, you know, that they sound crazy and people can be skeptical, but um, I was not, I was not raised that way. I was raised to have faith and belief in some of these things. And, One of the things was, um, you know, when I was really little, my mom and I would, I'm guess thinking, I'm thinking of a number between one and 10 and, you know, she would, we would close our eyes and she would, we would take our turns guessing and thinking. And, uh, whenever I would think of my, you know, guess her number, uh, she would, you know, is that what you seen? What did you see? What did you hear? And so I would, well, if I guess nine and I was wrong, she would ask, well, what did you see? What did you hear? What was your other number? You know? And so if often it was my, my next number, you know, it was the, I tossed around between a couple of them in my head. And so I think that really helped me kind of tune in or learn how to listen, uh, learn how to, how to see or hear those, those messages with her. After a while, we got really good and it would be one in 15, um, thinking of a number between one and 15, red or black. And we were really good. You know, it was kind of like our trick, you know, she would, let's do it, you know, show them, let's show them we can do it. And so that's just an example, you know, kind of of that spiritual uh, connection. Like I said, the day I found out about my mom, I cried all day. I woke up that morning crying. I cried all day. It wasn't until I went home to my mom's house. I went in and it felt like I was just waiting for her. Like, like she went to the store and I got there early and she was going to walk in the door any minute. 
And uh, after a few minutes, I, you know, half an hour or so, I started walking around the house, but I felt like I was snooping. I felt like I, I shouldn't be going in her room. I shouldn't be, you know, in her things. And I went in and laid down on her bed and, and looked at the bookshelf next to her bed and just started crying and smelling her, you know, pulling her pillows up to my face and smelling her. And I looked down and her purse was there and I knew like, I just knew my mom didn't leave without her, her things, you know, I knew she was gone at that point, And I knew that the day that I had been crying was goodbye. Um, that it was, I'm sorry. It was regret. It was, it was goodbye. And, you know, it's just that feeling like I just knew, I just knew. Um, when I was really young, really young. We were sitting in the car and we were listening to a funeral on the radio and it was a big funeral like Elvis or Lennon. And uh, she was talking, we were talking about death and I told her I didn't ever want her to die. And she said, it's the cycle of life, sweetie. Nobody lives forever. Um, You know, we all die. Our body is just a shell and it's, it's not meant to live forever, but the part of me that loves you, that will always be here. And, uh, you know, we were talking about this funeral and I said, well, when you die, I'm going to have a big funeral. I want everybody to come and say they love you. And, and she said, oh, that's not what I want. And I said, well, what, you know, what do you want? And she said, she just wanted to go out into the woods and let the beetles and the bugs and the coyotes, um, feed their babies with her, with her body. And that that was the cycle of life. And that was traditionally what would have happened with our bodies was that it would go back into the earth and the trees would, you know, we wouldn't, you know, nurture the trees and the animals. And that was natural. And it was mortifying to, you know, to my little girl brain um, that my mom would know, you know, no, not an option. Um, and so she said, fine, you can cremate me. And I still, you know, like, I, I don't want you to die. I don't want you to ever die. And she said, well, close your eyes. And so I closed my eyes and she said, am I still here? And I said, yes. And she said, how do you know? And I said, cause I can hear you. And she's like, okay, close your eyes. And so we sat there for a couple minutes and then she said, okay, open your eyes. And she said, could you hear me? And I said, no. And she said, could you see me? And I said, no. And she said, how do you know I was still here? And I said, I could feel you. And she goes, okay. When I'm not, when my body's not here, you know, the part of me that loves you will always be here with you. And I still can feel her at times. Um, it's a different feeling now. Sometimes it's very uh, pride, you know, like uh, I, I feel that she's proud or she's uh, proud of me. Or I feel like I'm walking down the sidewalk and I'm not walking fast enough and she's behind me. Somebody's behind me and they're trying to push me up, you know, like speed me out of the way. They're trying to like hurry up, pick up the pace. And I feel like that's her. But I also just really feel like she's just in the other room and we're working. And once in a while I can hear her bang around over there or uh, once in a while something comes through, but for the most part, I'm busy and she's busy, but we're still in the same house. <laughs> we just don't see each other anymore. Wow. Yeah. That's quite profound. Thank you uh, for sharing, um, that does, um, your spiritual connection with your mom help you, um, in the grieving process? I don't know that I could have got through some of this without that conversation in the car. 
I don't know why my whole life it was so vivid. Uh, I thought everybody had conversations like that. Like everybody's parents taught them about life and death like that, you know, and I didn't realize how much of a gift that was, but it's allowed me to find some comfort in, you know, the chances of us finding her that there's no place she would rather be. She wanted, you know, she wanted that. She wanted to be out in the woods. Um, She was okay with not being put in a box uh, somewhere, Um, but that was okay. Uh, So that's allowed me, you know, a lot of kind of some comfort. Um, Also wondering if she knew, you know, if our spirits knew what we, you know, what we signed up for. I've been taught that our spirits make these sacred promises to one another from the spirit world, you know, that we're star, we come from star people. And before we come here to our human bodies, our spirits uh, choose our path and we make promises to one another. All of our spirits have made sacred promises to do something, teach something, help in some way um, to protect or guide or some, you know, something that our, our spirits only know. And I wondered, you know, I've always wondered when we chose this path, did we choose this? You know, like maybe we chose our purpose, but not how we get there. Uh, Not what has to happen to us to learn how to do what our purpose was. Um, But that message, I don't know that I could do anything that I do or find any kind of uh, peace or comfort in uh, or purpose, you know, without knowing that she's okay. Uh, She would be okay out there in the woods. You said that that was the conversation that you had with your mom in the car was this gift that you thought every child had with their parents and having a discussion about death, but that's not the case. It's a very hard subject for parents to breach with their children. And I just, I'm thinking about my childhood and how like you didn't mention it. Like you didn't, you didn't talk about it. Anything that was anything slightly uncomfortable, we don't talk about. And it just is remarkable to me to hear you, recognize that like as a gift and and that story was amazing and i'm wondering if all of this with with your mom's disappearance and 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 your your spiritual path and your spiritual journey and and experiences this has shaped you into the person that you're that you are and you you communicate all of this so articulately and i'm wondering if this is something that you accept like this happened to my mom it all it all sort of led up to this. She knew that she didn't want to be put in a box. She knew she would, you know, she was at peace with the fact that if my body goes into the forest and is, you know, worked into the whole organic system, that's fine. That that was something she communicated to you, and that you know, is this all sort of meant to be in your head, and and or is it? You know, I mean, I'm just kind of jumbling up the question right now, but. Are you, are you content with this being your path? My human body didn't choose it. You know, I think, you know, we don't know. I don't think when we choose our paths, we get to choose the experiences that take us to our purpose. But I think I, you know, I accept, I accept that, you know, that we all have a, a purpose here, you know, at one point or another, those purposes might change. My purpose might be to help somebody else today you know and everything in my life has led me to cross the paths with that person or or them with me but 
I think sometimes when I think about that, I think of the sacrifice uh, that my mom made, you know, that to, to give me these teachings, to put me in the position to be where I am to help other people, the sacrifices that she made to be in the position where she was because she didn't have, you know, the trauma in her life wasn't, you know, it wasn't easy. So where do you go from here, Carolyn? I had an elder. When I first started talking about this, I couldn't even say my name without crying. Um, I would introduce myself. My name is Carolyn DeFord. My mother is Leona LeClaire Kinsey. My mom is a missing person. And I usually couldn't get past my mom's name. And I would, I would cry for a few minutes, you know, exercising that, that muscle, I guess, you know, to, to be able to speak. But I was talking to an elder and I said, I can't do it. I, I can't do it. I can't talk in public. I don't know what to say. I can't this. I can't do it. She said, just speak from the heart. And, you know, it's, it's your turn. It's your time. And who are you to question the doors that creator opens for you? So who, who am I to question the direction that I'm guided to? I just try to do the best thing that I can and ask, you know, a, in a prayerful way and be try to honor my family, honor my community, honor my mom to do no harm. Just try and uh, follow the path that's put in front of me in the best way possible. And where should somebody be directed if they have any information on your mom's disappearance? Um, I don't have the 1-800 number in front of me, but there's the Crime Stoppers has an anonymous tip line and um, Crime Stoppers has put up a $2,500 reward and the Puyallup Tribe has a $7,500 reward. So total there's $10,000 leading to uh, the arrest and conviction for information in my mom's case, uh, they could reach out to the LeGrand Police Department. Yeah, any information in her case is is appreciated. And sometimes it's just little bits, you know, people who knew Juan. People, um, Juan, he bragged about what he did um, to certain people and threatened certain people, you know, that he would, I'll do you like I did Leona. So we know that there's probably more people out there that you know, maybe he said something that they didn't take serious or that they thought he was just, you know, just talking. 